Ladies and gentlemen, we're beginning. Welcome to the Guide to Existence, where we try to explore the Torah portion inside through the lens of Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, Hasidic texts. And where uh, this year we are trying to understand a mitzvah from the Torah portion each week. So this week we're cheating a little bit because we're going to talk a little bit about the mitzvah that we learned about last week, but we're going to try and go a little bit deeper. And we're going to learn a new mitzvah as well. Okay? So you guys ready? Let's begin. So for everyone who was here last week, the end of last week's Torah portion, which was called Lech Lecha, concluded with the first mitzvah given to the first Jew. Who knows what that was? Anyone? Guys, can you show your screens, please? It makes me feel less lonely. I mean, not that Michelle and Julia are not wonderful company, but the more the better. Thank you so much, Jalen. And, uh, ah, circumcision, the mitzvah of bris milah, which was the first mitzvah given to the first Jew. Thank you, Tatiana. And the question that we discussed last week is, why is this the first mitzvah? What's the significance of this mitzvah? And why specifically... Uh, a bris, which is a covenant, pact. Why does our bris take place specifically on this part of the body? And last week we had all ladies in the class, so it was just a little awkward. But this week we have Daniel here, who's back from traveling the world, and it's so nice to have him. Um, One second. So... Today, this week's Parsha is called Vayera. And in this week's Parsha, it takes place just a few days after Avraham's bris. According to some opinions, it was three days later. Other opinions, it was right after the bris. And Avraham is sitting outside his tent. And he's healing. He's healing from his bris. And I'm going to share with you some of the Talmudic commentaries that Rashi brings down. It says as follows, Vayera alav Hashem, and Hashem appeared to him. Who's him? Well, it must be, it's the him that we were just talking about, Avraham in the last Torah portion. But for some reason it doesn't say who he appeared, he appeared to. It's a question. Next, what happens? So it's very weird. It says, God appeared to Avraham, and he was sitting outside his tent in the heat of the day. And then it says, the very next verse says that Avraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw there were three men who were standing in the distance, three Arab travelers or merchants, Bedouins, walking through the desert. And Avraham gets up and he runs to greet the guests, these, these three travelers, and he bows down to the ground in front of them, and he says, please, my masters, do not leave me. Do not go away from me. Please come to my house and let me give you a little bit of water and let me wash your feet and relax under the tree. So these three guests come to Avram's house. Avram prepares a very lavish meal for them. And then suddenly they reveal themselves to him that they're actually none other than three angels. And the three angels come, and one of them announces that Avram is going, Avram's wife Sarah is going to conceive and have a child. They were childless 
for many, many, many years. And there's going to be a continuation for the Jew, of the Jewish people. The other one comes, the, the Talmud explains, to heal Avraham from his bris. And the third one comes shortly after the story to go and destroy the town of Sodom. But that's for another conversation. And we did actually touch on that one a couple of weeks ago. But so there's a couple of questions here. Okay, and I'm going to just tell you a little bit of the commentary so that we can begin to get a deeper insight into the problems. First question is, it says, and God appeared to Avraham. Dot, dot, dot. And then nothing happens. And that's the end of it. You guys notice that it says, and God appeared to Avraham. And suddenly Avraham looked up and he sees three men in the distance. And that was it. End of the story. What? 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 What happened? What was God doing there? Like, what was the purpose of that revelation? It didn't go anywhere. Nothing happened. So one of the explanations that Rashi brings is that, that um, and Rashi being the most famous medieval French commentator on the Torah, who tries to give the simple, deeper explanation of what's going on, he says that God came to, to heal Avraham. Because he was suffering from his circumcision, which was, took place, according to Rashi, three days ago. And the third day is the most painful when the skin starts to heal. And so God came just to, to heal Avraham. There are different explanations, which we'll discuss shortly. And that's why he doesn't say anything. He just comes just to be in, in his presence. And the, that, that revelation itself healed Avraham. Then... Some, something interesting happened. It says, it was in the heat of the day. And Rashi says as follows. Why was it so hot that day? Rashi says that God didn't want to bother Abraham. Because Abraham's whole essence, as we've discussed in the past, was the mitzvah that Abraham lived for was kindness. Acts of kindness. And he set up basically a soup kitchen in the desert. The Talmud explains that his tent was open on all four sides. He created... Um, basically a system of welcoming guests. There was like a whole oasis over there. And he, they had a food. They offered people food, drink, a place, place to sleep. And they would also walk people out, escort them through a little bit out into the desert so they wouldn't get lost. And that was, that was Avraham's mitzvah. That was his number one thing that he lived for. And in addition to offering people food, so he knew the secret of teaching Torah to people is that you can't just be like, guys, come on, let's learn some Torah. Although you guys are all here learning Torah on a regular Wednesday night for no reason whatsoever, other than that you're all very holy. But most people aren't interested in coming to a Torah class on a Wednesday night unless there is something there to entice them. So what does every Jewish event have to have? Food, right? So Avraham started this tradition. And he used to give out free food. And then when the people were about to leave, he said, well, now you have to thank the creator for having created that food. And people would be like, no, I'm not into that. So he'd be like, all right, here's the bill. And he'd hit them with a fat bill. So, uh, so Avram used his tactics for the day. So we don't hit people with a bill if they don't say thank you for the food. But we, uh, we do always have food at all of our events. So, so now... Um, it says, it says in the Talmud that Rashi quotes that because Avram wanted to have guests so badly, so God decided to create an obstacle so that guests would not come that day because it would be too, too painful for him to have to get up and welcome guests into his home. So 
it says that Hashem took the sun out of its sheath. Now pay very close attention to this metaphor because we're going to go very deep into it shortly. God took the sun out of its sheath. And that is kind of a description that's found in really just a handful of places in the Talmud, which refers to like really hot day. Like there's something called the sheath, which is like, I don't know, I always say like the ozone layer that's in front of the sun. And God removed that and it got really hot so that guests wouldn't be, travelers wouldn't be going through the desert that day. So no guests came. Then when Hashem saw that Avram was so upset that he didn't have any guests, so Hashem brought these through these three angels to pretend to be guests to uh, to be there for Avram to serve guests. So the whole story doesn't make any sense. Does anyone want to ask any questions on that story? It's God doesn't want Avram to have guests, so he makes it really hot. No guests come. He sees Avram's upset, so then he brings three angels. Julia? Anything weird about that story? Anything bothersome? Right. Doesn't, doesn't Hashem know Avram's going to be upset that he doesn't have guests that day? And another thing that bothers me is, like, why, why make this weird sun thing? Like, why not just, like, make no one come out that day or why not make it rain or why not like put alligators on the road or something or tax collectors why why does he do this thing with the sun it's just like a little weird and then when he sees how upset avram is so just put the sun back to normal and then people will come naturally why does he have to then bring these angels the whole thing to me sounds very strange and um so next rashi says something else which is probably one of the most theologically crazy statements in Judaism. Okay? The Talmud says as follows. Abraham is sitting out there and God appears to him. And he's literally having a, a revelation, like a, a prophetic, ecstatic, meditative experience. And suddenly he sees in the distance three Arab travelers. And he says to God, God, nice to see you. I got to go. And he's pieces out on God and runs to get these guests. And the Talmud says, so let me ask you guys a question. What do you think is better? Washing the feet of these Arab Bedouin travelers or talking to God? What would you say is would be the pinnacle ideal of a religion? If you had the opportunity to have a divine experience, like that's what we're looking for. That's what every human being is looking for. We are all looking for an experience of oneness. We're all looking to connect to the infinite. That is what every human being is looking for from the moment they come into this world. We're all looking for connection and spirituality. We don't know that. Most people don't realize that. So we think it's money or experiences or different physical pleasures, but ultimately what everyone really wants is wholeness, completion. That's an experience of connection to God. So would everyone agree that it makes sense that God's there, you're having this incredible ecstatic divine experience, you should probably not leave. Does that everyone agree? Yet instead, Avraham leaves to go welcome these three travelers. And the Talmud concludes from this that it is greater to welcome guests into your home than it is to welcome 
the divine presence. Okay? Radical, right? This is radical Judaism. Okay? Judaism says it is better to do acts of kindness than it is to trip out on God. And I should have started by asking you guys a question that we know in, um, we've talked about, I just talked about it last week, Sunday, for whoever was in the uh, Rage Level 2 class, which I'm very excited about, Jaylene. I think it's only you here, but you guys are all welcome to come. If you haven't, if you've already done a semester of Rage, Rage Level 2, Rage U is on Sundays at 3 p.m. And my portion of that, we're doing practical Judaism. And we discussed that there are three primary religion, relationships in life, according to the Torah. Does anyone know what those three primary relationships are? Um, close, self, not just your parents, others, and God. And these are three essential ingredients to have a balanced life. You have to have healthy relationships with others, healthy relationships with yourself, and healthy relationships with God. Now, which of those, if I ask most people, which would they say is the most important? It really depends who you ask, but yeah, what do you say? <laughs> most people, when I say, what do you think Judaism thinks is important? They say relationship with you and God. Right. When I ask people, what do you think is the most important? People say relationship with you and others. The real truth is, I think, first of all, they're all interconnected. But I have a whole class on this. I think that the first and foremost is relationship with yourself and yourself. Because once you get that, then the all, all the others work. But putting that aside, we see clearly from this story in the Torah, it is incorrect what most people think. It's not about relationship with God. It's about relationship with others. That is first and foremost our number one priority. According to this, it's better to welcome guests into your home than it is to talk to God. And um, by the way, from this story, we learn about the mitzvah of what's called haknasis orchim, which means welcoming guests into your home. And uh, it is a real mitzvah to have guests. And it happens to be that that mitzvah applies even to uh, people that are, are wealthy. You're still doing a mitzvah, having someone in your house, even if they're not hungry. It's more of a mitzvah if they're hungry or homeless or uh, don't have another place to stay or eat. That's even more of a mitzvah because you're also fulfilling the mitzvah of tzedakah. But it is a mitzvah to have guests in your home to the point that many Jewish families, and this is a crazy thing. Many Jewish families will go out of their way to build guest, guest rooms in their house that are not used, except on Shabbos when, when they have guests. And that's like an amazing Jewish value. Now, this value is not only a Jewish value. Do you know who else keeps this mitzvah because of Abraham? Who? Christians, I, I don't know that all Christians keep it. Some might, but really religiously, some Jewish people, but even, probably even more religiously than Jews, because of Abraham, directly because of Abraham, is the Arabs. The Arabs, Muslims, Bedouins. Bedouins are, Arabs are descendants of Abraham also, and they have rules. 
that you are not permitted to uh, hurt someone, when, like anyone, even your enemy. They come into your house. You have to feed them. You can't kick them out. Right? And uh, there are whole sorts of uh, rituals to do with that in Bedouin culture and different Arab cultures. Um, the Talmud also has a statement similar to this. The Talmud says that anything that the owner of the house tells you to do when you're in this house, you have to do, except for one thing. You know what that one thing is? Leave. Talmud says. Anything that he tells you, you got to ask you to help clean up, put the kids to sleep, do the dishes, you got to do it. But if they say leave, don't got to do it. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Um, so my house is your house, right? And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. But there's another problem here. Okay, I'll just address a few other problems. So, so one of the questions that everyone asks is, how did Abraham know that? Like, we know it because of Abraham. But how did Abraham have the gumption or the chutzpah to say, God, catch you later, and then run and welcome in these guests? How did he know that that's the right thing to do? Like, it totally is counterintuitive to us. So that's another question that's asked here. And finally, um, a question that I had is that we learn this mitzvah of welcoming guests from the experience that Abraham has with these angels. But I think there's a big problem with that because the angels don't need to eat. They're not tired. They're not thirsty. So that's, is he really even doing a mitzvah? Like, what's he doing? Give it, go, like, how are we learning the mitzvah, the quintessential mitzvah of welcoming guests through a story of people that don't even need to eat and aren't even hungry? So how's this a quintessential mitzvah for us to learn? Okay, so let's, let's begin to try to break this apart. <sighs> All right, where should we start? I actually don't have notes in front of me because my printer's not working. But <laughs> so when we talk about, and this will be a little bit of review for people here last week. When we talk about Abraham, right? Abraham being the first Jew, what did Abraham really do that was so unique in the world? And uh, you guys can participate here. Does anyone know historically what Abraham brought to the world? Oh, monotheism, not just spirituality, monotheism. So traditionally, if you open up a textbook, it will say that Abraham was the first monotheist. And that is absolutely incorrect. It's not true. According to the Torah, there were always monotheists. Adam was a monotheist, Adam and Eve. Noah was a monotheist, Noah was a monotheist. Hanoch was a monotheist, Shem and Aver were monotheists. There were always different people in every generation that had a relationship with one creator. So if that's the case, so what's so famous about Abraham? How did he become the first Jew? So the answer is, is that Judaism is not, what's unique about Judaism is not monotheism. Monotheism is a world religion, not a Jewish religion. Monotheism belongs to all the nations. What's Judaism though? What did Abraham do that started something radical and new? So there are a few explanations answers to this question. One is that Abraham was the first person to find monotheism on his own through philosophy. It wasn't a tradition that he received. He wasn't a prophet in his early years. He actually discovered God through looking at nature and the stars and the planets and figuring out that there was a unified field theory. There was one 
unified force controlling everything. So Abraham grew up in an, an idolatrous culture. His father was an idol worshiper. His father was actually an idol maker. So that's one unique aspect of Abraham. Another one is that Abraham was the first to start teaching monotheism actively. He set up these soup kitchens all over the Middle East, was going out and teaching about the one God. But that also, I think, um, doesn't fully address the issue. You see, before Abraham, there were spirituality always exists, existed. But Abraham started a new approach to spirituality that had never existed before. What's so unique about Judaism? You see, what's really the difference between Jews and non-Jews, if there is a difference? If you were to say there was a difference between Jews and non-Jews, what is it? Like, why are we so into the Jewish people that we have this special mission in the world? Are we really different than anybody else? So if I were to ask you, are Jews stronger than non-Jews? The answer is obviously no, <laughs> right? Better sport athletes? Definitely not, right? Um, better people? No, not true. Plenty of very good non-Jewish people. What about um, smarter? So that you might say yes, but really probably not, okay? I don't think that it's a inherited intelligence, right? Um, are we more spiritual? Are Jews more spiritual than non-Jews? So the truth is, is that you find Jews everywhere in the world that there is spirituality, right? Jews are searching for spirituality and many, many Jews, the majority of Jews don't have not found it in Judaism. It's very sad. So because of this spiritual inheritance, the spiritual DNA, Jews are often you go to, and I did this uh, in my life, you go to the Buddhist monasteries, they're run by Jews, they're full of Jews. Go to the zendos, Jews, the, the ashrams, Jews, yoga centers, Jews. Um, anywhere that there is something spiritual, you will find Jews. A lot of Jews for, for Jesus. Uh, Jewish, uh, well, not so many, but I did discover an enclave of Jewish Muslims in uh, New York back in the day. So Jews are very spiritual, but are they more spiritual or are we just... You know, we're just not finding it in our own tradition, so we're looking everywhere else. So the answer is that no, Jews are not more spiritual than non-Jews. Try the Dalai Lama. Incredibly spiritual people, especially in India, in Asia. Incredibly spiritual. Native Americans, right? Every tradition around the world has spirituality. There's nothing more spiritual about uh, Jews than non-Jews. So what is it that, that differentiates? So... I believe the answer is precisely in the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people. Because God said, I'm going to make a pact with you, Abraham. And my pact with you is going to be eternal. You are beginning a new path in human history. You're blazing a new trail. And that new path is called Judaism. And what is the sign of that relationship? that I'm going to have with you for all of time? It's called the bris. And where is that sign? Wait a minute, this is getting weird now. Why, if I wanna make a sign of my relationship with God, shouldn't I put it on my finger or on my ear or, or wear it around my neck or maybe wear it between my eyes? 
you know, why am I putting my sign of my relationship in a very sensitive area and and private area? No one else is going to see it. The answer is, as we discussed last week, that the message of bris, as Hashem says, I want to have a relationship with you. The word bris means a, a pact, a deep relationship, blood brothers. I want to be with you in everything you do. And where do I want to have that relationship with you? In the most physical part of the most physical gender. That's where I want my relationship to be with human beings is in physicality. So you're going to take your most physical desires and you're going to bring me into that experience. That's the message of bris. bris the, what Judaism did was that before Judaism, there were monotheists who meditated on mountaintops and they connected to one God and to spirituality. Abraham brought God into the world, into every single aspect of life, from eating, conducting business, marriage, raising children, and every single aspect of physical pleasure. We have the ability to connect to God. So the difference between Jews and non-Jews is not the soul per se, not the spiritual, but the physical. We have an ability because of Abraham to connect to spirituality without disconnecting from physicality. Every other religion in the world, you want to be spiritual, you have to become celibate, can't get married, have to meditate all day. You have to fast, minimize your pleasure. Judaism comes and says, eat. In every single thing we do, you got to eat. Because it's in the physical that we can connect to spirituality. And that's a uniquely Jewish thing. Okay, you guys with me so far? So um, somebody once asked me, a convert to Judaism once asked me the following question. She said, according to Jewish mysticism, converts are J people with Jewish souls who were born in non-Jewish bodies. They were born in the, amongst the nations of the world, and they have to come back to the Jewish people and, uh, and reintegrate, but th their souls were already Jewish. And so she said to me, if I already have a Jewish soul, why do I need to convert? Like, I'm, that means I'm already Jewish. Like, why do I have to go through this whole process and go into, uh, of learning more about Judaism, of accepting mitzvahs, of going into a mikvah, which represents um, like being reborn? So she said, what do I need that all for? I said, very simple. I said, you may have a Jewish soul, but you don't have a Jewish body. And the mikveh literally represents being reborn physically, not spiritually. That is the uniqueness of, of the Jewish soul, is that it has the ability to come into the body and be engaged between spiritual and physical. And that, of course, is the message of the bris. As we said last week, that the most, what's the most for those of you who weren't here last week, what's the most spiritual thing that a human being can ever do? Let's not use the word spiritual. What's the most godlike thing that a human being can ever do? Have children. Become a creator. And literally the process of having children is the process of bringing souls into bodies. And that is the definition of life. All right, what's the definition of life? Body plus soul equals life, right? What happens when body and soul disconnect? That's called death. So our job is to create life in everything that we do by uniting the spiritual with the physical, okay? Now, any questions on any of that?
it's a purification it's a purification process but it it also is like a rebirth so that's a good question though but i don't have a better answer right now so okay so let's try to put back the pieces of what's going on here um so what avram brought to the world is the idea that we're in this world to do something in the world and like most religions say that the purpose of life buddhism is a great example that life is suffering the purpose of life is to connect to a world of detachment a world of oneness without attachments without desires so in order to connect to enlightenment you have to literally leave the world to end the cycle of reincarnation to break out of the world of attachment and desire to physicality right and um what what judaism teaches is that no it's we're we're in this world it's not an accident we're supposed to do something very important in this world to become partners with god in perfecting the world the world was created unfinished we have to finish it and that's another famous message of Avraham, the Talmud explains that Avraham was like a person wandering through the through the desert who sees a palace on fire. And he calls out, where's the owner of the house? Why is he not putting out the fire? And it says that that's exactly what happened in Avraham's life. He saw a world on fire. He saw a world. He looked at nature and he saw order and harmony and unity. But then he looked at one species on earth that doesn't know what it's here for, right? Animals animals ever wake up in the morning and say, hmm, what should I do today? Should I uh, become a vegetarian? Should I, uh, should I marry a different species? Should I join the circus? You know, should I become a ballerina? Animals can't do that. They're programmed to do what they're exactly what's supposed to do. They're programmed what to eat, when to mate, who to mate with. They don't have these existential dilemmas but human beings are existentially confused we don't have instinct see we have a problem we have an overdeveloped uh prefrontal cor cortex right our brain is, is able to conceive of abstract thinking and suddenly that means our instinct is diminished and we don't know what to do we're confused who are we why are we here i don't know what to do with my life so Abraham saw a world that was harmonious and in order, but one species was destroying the world, and that was the human being. And he said, where is the master of the house? Why is he letting human beings run wild and destroy each other and destroy the world? And God, said, God appeared to him at that moment and said, I'm the master of the house, and I deliberately allow my world to be on fire because I want you to put out the fire. We are meant to be partners with Hashem in creation of the world. And that's another message that we mentioned last week of bris, which is the message of bris, which the Greeks and the Romans hated, is that the human body is not perfect. We are meant to perfect ourselves. We have to change ourselves and cut away at our physical nature in order to perfect ourselves. And we talked more about last week about why specifically men have that mitzvah, not women, not for today. Listen to the podcast if you want to hear that. So I was I actually wrote an article many years ago about a um a rabbi, a Chabad rabbi in London who started an organization where he brought 
Israeli um, ingenuity in humanitarian aid and agriculture to third world countries. So he brought Israeli farming techniques to certain African countries. He brought um, different healthcare um, things to different different countries throughout the world. And one of the things he told me, which which stuck out in my mind, was he he tried to organize an ambulance corps. And I think he actually had Israel donated maybe an ambulance to um, to a city in India that did not really like have an ambulance system and um and somebody said you know he noticed that in 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 indian culture like death is so normal and it's like this in many third world countries right it's just it's a part of life people die all the time and in a way the the buddhist and hindu mentality is that everything is from god so to speak whether or not they talk about god buddhism doesn't talk directly about god but the idea is that everything is meant to be, right? Everything's for the good, and therefore death is also from God, right? And, and the truth is we really believe in that. We believe that everything's from God also. But so the idea of an ambulance corps was kind of like radical to people. Like there wasn't like that much of – it was kind of a novelty to try to fight against death. So this concept is really – it really appears in the, in the Talmud. Somebody said to Rabbi Akiva, if it's true that God is infinite and all-powerful, so why are there poor people? Why is there poverty? Why is there illness? Why is there starvation? So do you, what do you think Rabbi Akiva answered? And it actually says in, in the Torah that there will always be poverty. It can never be avoided. There will always be poor people. So Rabbi Kiva answers, yeah, do you know why there are poor people? So that you can do something to help them. Yeah, everything's from God. And of course, there doesn't have to be suffering. And of course, even in death, it is meant to be, and, and it's part of the master plan. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do whatever we can to fight against suffering and try to heal the world. That is a Jewish mission, to, to literally tikkun olam, to, change, to save the world, spiritually and physically. We should fight against death, and that's why um, Jewish people per capita give more tzedakah, more charity than any other group. Uh-oh. Any other group in the world jews give more charity so for some reason my zoom just crashed let me pause the recording so the the message of one of the primary messages of of abraham is that we're in this world to perfect the world to become partners in with hashem in in recreating and perfecting the universe and bringing spirituality into physicality. So Abraham is sitting outside his tent. And I believe that there's a very, very profound message in, encoded in the words of the Talmud that we mentioned earlier. A God appears to him. And the Kabbalistic commentaries explain that 
through the mitzvah of bris, Avraham's body now became holy. And he was able to receive the divine presence on his body. And he gets his bris, and suddenly it becomes extremely hot. The metaphor of the sun being removed from its sheath that we mentioned, it says God removed the sun from its sheath. I think the Talmud is speaking in code here. Because we find this exact same concept in a discussion we talked about on Sukkot for whoever was there. The Talmud says that in the future, in what's called La'asid Lavo, the world to come, it describes what is going to happen in the next world. Do Jews believe in hell? Ladies and gentlemen, do we believe in hell? Survey says... <laughs> yes and no. So there's actually a great um there's a great line <laughs> in the Simpsons go to Jerusalem. Anyone see the Simpsons go to Jerusalem or Simpsons go to Israel? You know the Simpsons, right? Everyone knows the Simpsons? Okay, so you got to watch the Simpsons go to Israel. It is classic. So um they arrive in the airport in Jerusalem and there's a big sign that says Welcome to Israel, brought to you by American taxpayer dollars. That's cute. And then um, Krusty the Clown, who in in the Simpson, uh, Simpsons is actually Jewish. His name is Kalman Christophers or something. And um, so Lisa says, Krusty, what are you doing here? He says, well, I'm Jewish. I always wanted to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land so I wouldn't go to hell. And she says, Krusty, Jews don't believe in hell. He's like, oh, really? Thanks. Then he goes into a strip club called the Gaza Strip. Anyway, that is the uh, the Simpson episode. Don't try that at home. But anyway, it is incorrect. A misnomer. Many people think that Jews don't believe in hell. The answer is not true. We believe in something called Gehenna. What we don't believe in is internal damnation. We believe in a process of purification. But let me tell you what the Talmud says. In fact, describes that future experience of eternal, of hell, so to speak. Says the Talmud, Ein Gehenim la'asid lovo. There is no hell, purgatory, whatever you want to call it, Gehenim in the next world. There isn't actually. So I guess Lisa Simpson was correct. Talmud says there is no hell in the next world. Rather, God removes the sun from its sheath and shines down. Sinners, so to speak, are burned by the sun, and Sadiqim, righteous people, are healed by the sun. What is this message? It is as follows. According to the Hasidic writings, the founder of Chabad Hasidus, the Balatanya, says as follows, that there is a, a verse in Psalms that says, Magen Ushemesh Hashem Elohim. A shield and the sun, Hashem, Elohim. These are two names for God, which we've discussed many times. A shield and the sun, Hashem, which is the four-letter name of God, Yud, He, Vav, He, which represents the source of creation. God in his essence, so to speak, oneness. Elohim, which is another name of God, which means God's or powers, which represents the mask, 
that God wears to hide himself through the world of nature. Okay, these are two different names of God. One is, just to simplify, one is God's oneness, the, the real God, and the other is God constricting himself in the world of nature, hiding himself in the powers that be. Now, when people worshipped idols, what they were worshipping was the name Elohim, which means many gods, literally means many gods, it's plural, or forces. They were worshipping the spiritual powers which God hides himself in, it means the forces of nature, the stars, the planets, the wind, the sun, the rain. Right In the ancient world, if you look around the world, you do see many different powers, many different forces that seemingly control your destiny. What is so unique about monotheism, Jewish monotheism, is that it says that those forces that you see are really all one. They're all being controlled by one power, one true force. So, and that true force is in everything. So we don't, whatever, we'll talk about this more another time. But the metaphor of God removing the sun from the sheath is that God removes the name Elohim, which is the mask that he wears in the, to hide him in the world, the mask of nature, and reveals his true essence. That's what happens in the next world. There's no such, you know what heaven and hell are? The exact same thing. Revelation of true spirituality, of true unity, of true godliness. If you spent your life developing a relationship with the infinite, it is the most awesome experience. If you spent your life engaged purely in physicality as an end in itself, so that is an experience of incredible pain because you don't have the ability to connect and relate to that because you didn't spend your life building a relationship with it. If you want to learn more about this topic, please, I, I urge you to listen to my class on Sukkot called, I believe, Spiritual Sunglasses, and we talk more about this concept. But what essentially is happening here is that through the mitzvah of bris, Avram removed a little bit of his physicality and now had the capability for a greater revelation of spirituality that can now coexist in the physical. You see, the Torah says a person cannot see me. God says a person cannot see me and live. Why? Because if God were to reveal himself to us fully, what would happen to us? We would burn up. We would melt back into the oneness, just like holding a candle next to the sun. But through mitzvahs and through the Torah, we learn to engage in spirituality through physicality so that we can have revelation while continuing to exist in a body that can actually experience that revelation. If we were to go back into God, like the Buddhist enlightenment experience, so we wouldn't be there to experience it, but God wants us to experience him. He wants to experience the bliss of connection to oneness. So he enables us to do it through the world, through the body. So the bris shows, re revealed a new ability to connect to spirituality and physicality. Avram takes away his bris and suddenly God is revealed and yet he's not burning up. Suddenly he's seeing angels. He's surrounded by angels, regular people. They were, were they Arabs or were they angels? Perhaps the answer is yes. He was able to see the, the angels inside regular human beings. And now, Avram, when he says to God, stay here, I'm going to welcome guests, perhaps 
what he really said was, God, come with me as I welcome guests. Because now he realized that the highest level of spirituality was bringing God into the physical. It's better to, you know what's better than talking to God? Being like God. And that is the message that this week's Parsha is telling us. Better than talking to God is welcoming guests into your home. Because that's what God does for us. Gives us the ultimate act of kindness, which is the gift of life. And literally, that is the process of creation. Hashem removed himself. Before there was a world, all there was was God. No room for anyone else. The first thing, according to Kabbalah, that God did before creating was remove himself. Create space, a vacuum, a womb in which the universe can exist. And perhaps the bris is reenacting the cosmic process of creation. It's removing a little bit of ourselves in order to make room for other. That's the first step in relationship. Before I can relate to you, I have to have room inside me for you. I have to make space for you. I have to be able to listen to you. I have to be able to hear you. I have to be able to welcome you into my home and into my heart. And only then can I begin to give to you. So first, Avram remakes space, and then he fills it with acts of kindness on a whole different level. Perhaps that is the message of what's going on here. And um, in our own life, we can begin to attempt to make room for others a little bit more and realize that that is the ultimate act of spirituality, is learning to be a giver, because that's the most God-like thing we can be is a giver, a creator. We can create worlds with our acts of kindness for others. So, my friends, that is this week's Torah portion. I hope you enjoyed. And um, looking forward to hearing from you. Please reach out if you have any questions. GavrielHaran at gmail.com. Love to hear your feedback. I love to hear that people are listening to this podcast. And now, guys, let's uh, hear questions from the audience.